Welcome to episode 28, a conversation about EMDR, the who, what, where, why, and when of it by Kim Greeley, licensed marriage and family therapist from Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hi and welcome. My name is Kim Greeley. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and I'm an EMDR certified therapist. And I'm sitting here today with a colleague of mine, uh, Hallie. And um, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. I've been asked to uh, speak on EMDR and I was trying to do this on my own in my office uh, by myself and it wasn't going very well. So we've decided to turn this CEU experience into a conversation about EMDR. So Hallie's here with me, graciously giving of her time. And um, what's wonderful is that she's curious about EMDR and doesn't know much about it. I don't know anything, really, so <laughs> it's perfect. And, and when I started um, learning about EMDR, or before I started learning about EMDR, I, I had been working in the field for 20-ish years, and... Um, Pretty effective, and then I had a lot of different skills on how to get to what needed to be gotten to right. in order to help a client get yeah. unstuck. Um, but I found myself at some point at impasses with certain clients and right. not able to help get them unstuck. Right, and it was frustrating for me, and I started to feel really incompetent, and that never feels good. Yeah. Um, and so I knew that I had to add something to my practice, mm -hmm. and I decided to check out EMDR because I've heard of it. Um, I knew it was for trauma. Right. And other than that, I, I, I basically knew very little else. Um, so I started asking around to people who were using it in their practice, and they had only good things to say, so I went for the training. And um, it, it's been a game changer in my practice. That's exactly where I'm starting. I don't know anything, but I've heard wonderful things about it. So okay. I'd like to know more. So I'm going to kind of give just a Please. brief overview. I'll include some of the history of it, although I'm not going to go yeah. in specifics because there's so much that's readily available on the Internet. And um, it's just as easy for, for someone to go in and look up the different research that has been done. And lots of journals are um, documenting different... Um, um, results of different studies that were done. Right. But um, EMDR was started by Francine Shapiro in 1987. And um, it was kind of by chance because the story goes that Francine was walking in a park, I think on the campus of wherever she happened to be attending at the time, and was aware of having um, some negative experiences going on. She was mm -hmm. uh, just really disturbing thoughts happening and she was um, struck by that. Mm -hmm. And then what she noticed is her eyes started to move back and forth very rapidly. And, and that was interesting to her. And so I, what she decided to do was to find just a bench to sit down on and just allow this unusual process to take place, whatever was going to happen, just to let it happen. Mm -hmm. And so she sat down and she went to recall the disturbing thoughts she were, was having. Uh -huh. And what she became aware of is that they weren't very disturbing anymore. And all she could think of was that her eyes were moving back and forth. And then the thought was less disturbing. 
And it was interesting enough for her to start to play with that a bit. And so she would bring up disturbing memories or experiences. And then she would make her eyes go back and forth. And then she would check back in on herself. And what she realized is that the memories were less disturbing. And um, it was interesting enough for her to actually start to talk to colleagues and friends and family and have them do similar experiences. So she would ask them to bring up an uncomfortable or disturbing mm -hmm. memory or thought or experience. Mm -hmm. And then she'd have them try to move their eyes back and forth on their own rapidly. Right. And um, then check back in with them to bring up that thought or memory. And what she found was that they, too, were somehow emotionally desensitized. After such a short time? Such a short time. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So she started to do more research on uh -huh. that. And um, in 1989, she published her first controlled study, which um, spoke of the efficacy of EMD. Uh -huh. She called it EMD originally, um, eye movement desensitization. And what she realized as she started studying it more and utilizing it more with clients and colleagues is that it was the process that she was doing was doing much more than just desensitizing um, one to the negative emotions. There was also a lot of cognitive restructuring that was taking place. Um, people would um, find themselves having like spontaneous awarenesses come up and um, what were negative beliefs or limiting beliefs about themselves that were attached to some of their experiences right. were shifting to more um, positive, more um, effective self-cognitions and beliefs about themselves. And it was happening pretty regularly. And this is her observation. That was her observation. Doing, okay. Yes. And not only that, but the memories that she was targeting with this technique were um, actually desensitizing not only the response to those initial targeted memories, but also memories that seemed to be sharing a similar memory track. So there was a generalization impact or effect of EMDR. And so because it did so much more than just desensitize, yeah. in 1990, she decided to change EMD to EMDR. Okay. And so it's eye movement, desensitization, mm -hmm. and reprocessing. Okay. And since then, there's been just dozens of studies done, all really supporting the yeah. um, strong and significant impact that EMDR has on not only um, dealing with one's past trauma and, and PTSD symptoms, mm -hmm. but there's been studies now that show um, EMDR is effective in treating many different symptoms. I'm just going to list several, but there's studies yeah. done. There's uh, You can use it for treating phobias, panic disorders, generalized anxiety, depression, grief and mourning, uh, chronic pain, migraine headaches, and so on. So I encourage you when wow. you have time, if you're curious, just go and just start to explore on the internet because it's all there um, and written in journals. So what I found in my practice is that I'm using EMDR for, um, I, I want to say almost any negative experience that someone brings into my office, I have found EMDR beneficial. I, I mean, I'm, and I'm saying that pretty blanketly. Yeah. Um, but it's also my truth. Right. 
So, and I'll talk more about that. But for this conversation that's being recorded, <laughs> I want to try to stick to EMDR and the um, the protocol that's set out by Francine Shapiro. Uh -huh. She spent a lot of time putting together a specific series of um, procedures that are done one after the other that formulate the whole experience of EMDR. Okay. So when um, people hear of EMDR or, or think about it, sometimes they only think about that. They've heard about the eye movement, so they think about right. you know, fingers moving in front of the face, and that's EMDR. Um, and, and that's one piece of EMDR. Yeah. But EMDR starts out from the first initial conversation that you have with the client, and I'll, and I'll talk more about that. Um, before I go into the phases of EMDR, I want to talk about what's called adaptive information processing. And that's talking about the idea that our brains are constantly seeking health and wellness, mm -hmm. just like our bodies are constantly seeking health and wellness. And when our body has an injury, it goes into a healing process. Mm -hmm. Um, and when the brain has an injury, it also wants to heal. However, there's things that happen to us physically um, and emotionally that become blockages. So if you had, and I explain this to my clients, in a way that they hopefully can picture a little bit easier. So if they had, I would say, a laceration on their arm, mm -hmm. um, then the body would recognize that and it would start to move into a healing process. And if there were blockages in that wound, dirt or little rocks, right. the body would still heal that wound, but the blockages, the dirt and rocks right. would be um, closed in and it would fester. That okay. wound would become right. infected perhaps and sore and red and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. If the brain has a wound, a traumatic experience, and the emotional experience is, is too great for the brain to assimilate effectively, mm -hmm. it will encapsulate that experience um, and store it somewhere in the back part of the brain. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a, the, there's a wound, but it's closed up, but it's like infected. So, it's like a little festering thing on your arm, kind of. Exactly, kind of. exactly. So if you were having this wound in your arm that has infection yeah. um, and you wanted to get it taken care of, you would probably go to a doctor and have them lacerate it and they clear out all of the gunk and mm -hmm. make sure it's clean from the bottom out and then yeah. it would start to heal uh, you know, in a way where it no longer is, is infected. For the brain, if there's a blockage and it's sealed in the back of the head, if we're able to open up the brain to communicate effectively with the more rational part of the brain, which is in the front of the brain, to go back and open up those old wounds, lacerate them, let's uh -huh. say, and then clear out that which is blocking it, let out all the pus and the junk, yeah. and then let that heal from the inside out, it would no longer be something that would continually uh, be a bother right. or a pain to the person. Right. So I talk about EMDR. It's almost like going back into those old wounds and opening them up and letting the infection come mm -hmm. out, that which has been there all along, 
so that the individual can heal and, and no longer be bothered by those old experiences. And, and that's helpful because I get to remind the client as we're going through the process, mm -hmm. when they do start the experience of the, it's called desensitizing, which is one of the stages of EMDR, which is when the, um, let's say that wound is opened mm -hmm. and that pus is coming out, I can remind that person that everything that's coming out, everything that you're feeling, everything that you're remembering, everything that your body's experiencing has been in there all along. Right. We're not adding anything to you. Right. We're allowing your you an experience yeah. of letting it go, of yeah. cleansing it. So it gives them um, a reminder that this is a process of healing, even though it might be painful. Right. It's a good thing. Right. Um, and so that adaptive information processing is the backbone, let's say, for EMDR. It's the model mm -hmm. in which it's built upon. And that's that our experiences in life are adaptively processed in the brain um, so that we can retrieve information that we need mm -hmm. for future experiences effectively, and that which no longer serves us gets discarded. Right. When there's trauma in the brain, it becomes a blockage to that adaptive processing. Mm -hmm. And so EMDR gives us a tool to allow those old maladaptively stored experiences to be reprocessed and restored in a way that's more adapt adaptive. Um, does that make sense? That's, yeah, I know. <laughs> that's amazing. And I love the analogy with the physical because so often it's, um, you know, the mind and everything is such a mystery. But if you, the analogy of, of actually, it hurts actually to clean it out. Yeah. So it's actually a good thing. Yeah. You know, and it helps, and the clients can kind of see that, then it feels yeah. that way to them. Yeah. So that's helpful. Um, so that was the um, adaptive information processing. Um, to get to the actual process of EMDR in the eight phases, um, I'm going to start by just talking about this three-pronged approach that EMDR also mm -hmm. involves. And I, and I love EMDR. Hopefully I get that across in this conversation because EMDR gives us an opportunity not only, not only to process the past experiences, uh -huh. but also the present problems that brought you into your, you know, clinician's office. Right. It also gives an opportunity to, I, I call it like rehearsing uh -huh. future experiences that you feel might, um, you, you might come upon that you want to be more effective in. And that's called future templating. So with EMDR, we process our past, our present, and our future. Um, and it, that, that part to me is really amazing. When you can have someone come to your office and um, let's say they're, they're going to be taking their MFT test uh -huh. and they're really, really anxious and they haven't been able to focus and that's what brings them in there. Uh -huh. It's bringing up old... Um, school stuff, school yeah. issues, worrying about yeah. tests, yeah, performance anxiety, whatever it is. Um, they'll come here and we'll talk about what's happening currently. And EMDR thinks about the past becoming present. So when you come in and you're in, impacted by something mm -hmm. 
that seems bigger than what's happening, like this person might say, normally these things wouldn't bother me, but I haven't been able to focus. I haven't been feeling like myself. I've been extremely agitated and uncomfortable. Right. It's an indicator that probably something from the past is impacting their present. Mm -hmm. So when they come in, we can look at what's happening currently. Mm -hmm. Like this trigger is they're studying for their test and are feeling yeah. um, unable to do so effectively. And then we get to look at, well, what's happened in the past that may be feeding into this. Mm -hmm. uh, and they may or may not be aware of that. And so I can help them try to figure that out. And, and I'll talk about how I do that when I go into the stages. Um, and then we can actually talk about oh, what may be happening in the future where, they, where they're going to want to be more effective. And that would probably be the actual test taking mm -hmm. experience. Um, so part of figuring out why someone's coming to your office um, what the current issues are, the problems that they're having, um, some of the current triggers, things that are setting them off. Um, that's part of the first stage of EMDR, which is history taking and treatment planning. So mm -hmm. we want to know what's bringing them in here. Mm -hmm. And as um, a model using the AIP, the Adaptive Information Processing, I'm always kind of thinking, what is it that may be contributing Right. to what's happening today mm -hmm. that may not have been adequately uh, assimilated um, from the past. And so part of the history taking is thinking about current issues and also thinking about past uh, traumas. And some of them are really obvious. I'll have clients coming in and they'll know, right. like, I had a serious car accident. Right. You know, right. I was raped at 13 years old. Right. I was abused. They'll, they'll come with obvious traumas. Right. Um, and some people will come in and say, Really, my childhood, as I remember it, was just idyllic, right. and um, but I'm not doing well. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't I know, know why. Yeah. And what they found with EMDR is that the negative effects in our lives can be caused by the obvious, let's say, big T traumas, right. but equally caused by small T traumas, right. small developmental experiences right. that were, you know, maladaptively right. uh, stored like your perception of whatever exactly. was, even if it wasn't big. Right, yeah. right. And, you know, when I talk out to my clients, I'm reminding them that what happens to you as a child, yeah. um, let's say you're, you're three years old and someone's yelling yeah. all the time. And, uh, you know, in your three-year-old mind, it's like the world revolves around you. And if they're yelling, your little three-year-old brain is trying to make sense of the world. Right. And they're not necessarily thinking, oh, mommy and daddy are fighting. Right. They're like, what am I doing wrong that this is happening? And so right. they come with all these beliefs that I'm, I'm a bad person. Yeah. It's my fault. Right. And they've lived their life. Right. And, and the universe has this way of proving ourselves to be correct. Whatever we think about ourselves, we have these experiences that support that. With the brain has, <laughs> exactly. Has, yeah. yeah. See, this is still happening. I yeah. can't have a healthy relationship. Everybody's mad at me, or right. whatever it is. So, part of EMDR will look at some of those mm -hmm. faulty negative beliefs mm -hmm. and what will happen. And how I mentioned that Francine changed EMD to EMDR because it was doing so much more than desensitizing. Mm -hmm. The process of EMDR actually allows the client to spontaneously come up with positive cognitions, they start to realize, wait a minute, mom and dad weren't having a healthy relationship. Maybe there was alcohol involved. Right. Maybe there were other issues, but it had nothing to do with me. 
So then they get to kind of disengage from that. I am a bad person. And they realize, wait a minute, I'm okay. This wasn't about me. And so their whole um, awareness of the situation shifts. Mm -hmm. Um, The the outcomes are amazing to see someone go through that, this belief that they've carried around all their Mm -hmm. life to finally realize, wait a minute, it was never even about me. Right. Um, and how do you put EMDR onto, I mean, because, you know, a lot of talk therapy, that's what it is, is revisiting right. your adult brain to something that you've never reconsidered. Right. So what is it that that's different with? So EMDR, it yeah. fits with any kind of therapeutic approach. So yeah. it's, it is talk therapy. So yeah. like I am a talk therapist right. and I use EMDR yeah. in my practice. So, and some clients prefer, they're not ready for it for whatever reason. Yeah. So in order for me to move into EMDR, I want to make sure that the client's ready for that. So it's the history taking first that the you're looking at and you kind of pinpoint what you're... Yeah, and we talk, and they know I'm an EMDR, most people know that I'm an EMDR therapist when yeah. they come here, yeah. or they've heard about it, or yeah. I'll usually, I'll always mention it. Um, and so as we're taking the history, I'll be making notes and I'll point it out. Yeah, you know, uh, and I'll also let them know that perhaps we'll think about moving into EMDR around uh-huh. these issues. Um, so the history taking, um, again, I'm going to specifically talk about when I'm using EMDR with the client because okay. otherwise I'm just talking about talk right, therapy, yeah, which yeah. is awesome. Yeah. But no, no, so, I yeah. want to talk about EMDR. So take the history. Uh, the training planning is kind of identifying where we're going to start, um, and we start by identifying a memory target. And I'll talk more about that. But that's going to be like how we get into the memory channel. And how the brain stores memory is in memory channels of common or similar experiences are stored on a similar channel. And it's not always straightforward. Like, And I'm learning more and more. I just trust the brain. It's, mm-hmm. it, it, it's part of the part of my job that makes it really easy because I just have to stay out of the way Mm -hmm. and I trust that your brain or my client's brain will take us exactly where it needs to go Mm -hmm. and it's not let me down yet so I don't have to overthink it yeah I just stay out of the way and sometimes the associations uh, don't necessarily make sense Uh so when I'm working with a client I'm going to let them know don't worry if what comes up doesn't necessarily seem connected to what we're working on um, because it's not always so obvious, right. but if we can trust that the brain will take us where it needs to go, we'll get there. So um, so in, in order for the team planning to go, all we have to do is figure out what's going to be our window of opportunity. Where do we get in? Mm-hmm. So the memory targets where we get in. And um, the second stage of um, EMDR is uh, preparation. So the first phase is history taking and treatment planning. The second phase is preparation. And during preparation, we're doing a lot of things. We're um, continuing to reestablish the relationship with our client because they have to really uh, trust the relationship and trust that me as a therapist, I'm going to be able to support them during this experience. I... I have a really strong background in working with a, a acute, mentally ill, and locked psych unit. So I tell my clients, there's very little that's going to happen in this room right. that um, I won't be able to handle. I can't, I can't, I've never, you know, I assure them that no matter what happens, I'm going to be right here with them. Right. 
and um, that I want them to feel comfortable enough to just be as honest as they can be mm-hmm. so that I'm able to help them mm-hmm. as, as effectively and efficiently mm-hmm. as I can. Um, for EMDR, we don't have to go through a whole um, story about the trauma, mm-hmm. which some people find a relief because either mm-hmm. they're not comfortable doing that or they've done it so much that they don't want to keep on doing it. Right. So the good news is they don't have to. They may yeah. want to, but yeah. they don't have to. It's not crucial for me to know every detail. Yeah, and so I'll even say sometimes, like, my curious mind wants to know more, but right. I don't need to. Right. So I try to kind of really stay out of it. Right. Um, and as a talk therapist, you know, you're, you're, I find myself wanting to know more. Right. Um, with, when I'm doing EMDR, I take a little a bit of a different approach. Because I can still help them move through their process without Mm -hmm. my curious brain finding all the answers out. Right. So that's been a learning experience for me. That's interesting. Yeah. How do you how do you perform that? Yeah. So so um. You can get to that whenever. Yeah, I will get to that absolutely. Um, So for preparation, it's me letting the client know what to expect. It's Uh it's us making sure that they're comfortable, that they can trust this experience, this relationship. Uh I also want to know that they have their own ability to take care of themselves emotionally when they're not in the office. They Uh have a support system. I'm curious about what they do in their free time. How do they Uh self-soothe? What resources do they have? And are they able to use them? Part of EMDR talks about the specifics of how we're going to carry out the EMDR. Um, So I will let them know that originally EMDR was uh, used with eye movement. Mm -hmm. So, and and I'll still use eye movement for some clients. Some prefer that. Um, Some have done it in the past and that's worked. So Mm -hmm. why why do something different? But EMDR is now done in many different ways. So originally a client would have to sit by my side, very close to me, and mm-hmm. they, they call that uh, ships that pass in the night. So I would be sitting and my client would be sitting uh, right alongside me, facing me, and then I'd have to hold up my hand in front of their face, uh-huh. about a foot to a, a foot and a half, whatever's comfortable for them, with uh-huh. my fingers, two fingers up, and I would actually have to move my arm across from shoulder to shoulder um, and have them just follow my fingers with their uh-huh. eyes but I'm holding my arm up now and showing Hallie how that is and it's a lot of work on the shoulder yeah. so I would be really very uncomfortable yeah. um, and I try to get myself you know to be supportive but it's very hard so a lot of shoulders and it sounds yeah. silly but a lot of EMDR therapists right. when we began using eye movement they were having shoulder issues some sessions um, the ideal session for EMDR is an hour and a half but for most of us, it's very difficult to schedule our to time that, that way. So you can do 50 minutes, 60 minute sessions as long as you're able to uh, effectively close down a session, which I'll talk about. But the eye movement part would probably be, well, it depends. You know, you could do that. I was doing that for maybe 50 minutes. <laughs> you stop and start and I'll talk about okay. that. Okay. But the good news is that the eye movement created bilateral stimulation, mm-hmm. right, left movement in the brain. And they found that that bilateral stimulation was the important component. Mm. 
um, not necessarily the eye movement. So thank God there's other ways to right. create this bilateral stimulation. Yeah. I often use um, pulsers, and I have them in a little um, baggie next to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking them out and showing Hallie what they look like. And it's simply a little device that has um, two plastic, let's say, pods, um, one to place in each hand. Mm -hmm. And they're attached to um, a wire. And in my hand, I'm holding the um, mechanism that allows me to shut on and off the pulsers. It also allows me to change the intensity of the pulse, the length between the pulses, as well as the length of the actual pulse. And other than that, all it does is vibrate in your hand. I'm mm -hmm. going to put it on just quickly. Yeah. Just so you feel it. Yeah. Okay. So it's just vibrating. Yeah. Um, so it's not sending any, I always tell my clients, it's not sending electrical currents right. into you. And it's not reading anything from you. It's simply vibrating and providing a bilateral right. stimulation. Yeah. Um, so I would show them this during the preparation phase. Uh -huh. I would talk about eye movement during the preparation phase. I'd let them know there's other, other clients that actually want me a little bit closer. And so I will lean up in front of them and I will put my hand on either side of their knee and just tap. So this is tapping. Okay. So right, left tapping uh -huh. by the sides of the knees. I, I prefer to use the pulsers when I can because I feel it's more respectful of space. So when I'm, like I said, doing eye movement, the client has to sit right. extremely close to me. And when I'm doing tapping, they have to sit extremely close to right. me so I can reach them. But with the pulsers, it's on a long enough wire that I can sit in my space and they can sit in their uh -huh. space. And um, it's a little less intrusive. Mm -hmm. It's also, um, they have the ability to close their eyes if they want to, mm -hmm. which often... Uh, allows them to get a little bit deeper mm -hmm. into their experience. It feels a little bit more private. Right. Um, sometimes uh, clients will start to cry, and then um, it's difficult to cry and watch my fingers. So, right. so they can cry at their will and hold on to the pulsers, and we can keep on moving through it. Uh -huh. uh, there's also other uh, tools that EMDR therapists use. Some use headphones with the sound balancing right, right. to left. Other people use light bars, and so the client would watch the light that moves across a bar. Okay. So what you're wanting is a bilateral stimulation. Yeah. It all serves the purpose of the bilateral. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. So part of the preparation okay. phase is letting the client know yeah. about that. I would also let them know about different metaphors I may use. And as an EMDR therapist, during the processing period, during the fourth stage, um, when we're actually applying the bilateral stimulation, I will be right here reminding the client that mm -hmm. everything that comes up has already happened. Mm -hmm. They've already survived it here and now, you know, mm -hmm. they're safe. Mm -hmm. um, I will give them encouragement to think about if, if they're starting to feel uncomfortable and want to stop, mm -hmm. they have the power to do that. This mm -hmm. is their process. So I'll, I'll let them know, give me a, a stop sign yeah. rather than just saying stop because sometimes they'll verbally Right. communicate during this experience, the experience, um, and it doesn't mean they want to stop. It just means they're saying that out loud right. for some other reason. So I'll let them know that they're, you know, just give me the stop sign and we'll stop. However, if they get uncomfortable, let's mm -hmm. say if they were um, driving a car through a tunnel mm -hmm. and they were all of a sudden frightened to be in the tunnel mm -hmm. and they to put the brakes on, then they're so if they're in the tunnel and they start to feel afraid and frightened in the tunnel, if yeah. they put the gas on, they'll get through the tunnel a lot right. quicker to the other side. Right. So I kind of use that analogy too, right. so that if they start to feel uncomfortable, 
you know, we can back off, but it might make sense just to kind of allow right. them to be encouraged to keep moving forward right. um, to get to the other side. Do they let you know during if they're uncomfortable, something's happened? You know, oh, absolutely. It's, like, oh, it's, yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's absolutely a, a talking it's as a we do okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of using EMDR, we're instructed to really go by the protocol as it's as it's taught. Yeah. But as you get more comfortable, you start to have your own rhythm. Right. And okay. way of doing that. So um, the preparation phase is also letting clients know some of these ways in which right. we might remind them of what's happening. Right. Um, part of the preparation phase is an experience of helping them get um, familiar with new resources. Mm -hmm. And a common one that we use um, is called the Safe Calm Place. It gives us an opportunity to introduce the client to the bilateral stimulation because we use that during the installation of a safe, calm place. Mm -hmm. It gives them an opportunity to start to um, hear some direction from me. It helps them uh, to start to allow themselves to start to imagine things in their mind. So they're going to bring up imagery. So it gives them an idea of how that feels to talk about what's happening. And so when we... Uh, do this um, installation of a safe, calm place, what I would ask them is if they can recall being somewhere or doing something, either real or imagined, they mm -hmm. don't have to actually have been there or have right. done that, but they can actually imagine being there or doing that. I usually try and do being there. Can you, um, can you bring up a place where you've either been or can imagine being where when mm -hmm. you're there, you feel safe and calm? Mm -hmm. And um, they'll be holding on to the holsters at the time. Uh -huh. And I will ask them, you know, let me know when they come up mm -hmm. with a place. And it doesn't usually take long. They're usually, yep, I have a place. And I say, can you tell me a little bit about it? Mm -hmm. So I want them to start to be able to tell me what they see. So I'll just, a lot, a lot of, of people come up with the beach or a specific beach. Right. Um, so let me say it's at the beach. And, and I'm like, what are you seeing while you're there? And they're going right. to... Tell me what they're seeing, you know, the water, I see the waves, um, the sand is right. warm. Um, it's a nice day, going. yeah, and I'm like, and I'll okay. encourage them, you know, yeah. are you, what are you, what are you noticing that you're hearing? Um, I hear the waves crashing, uh -huh. the birds, I hear yeah. people laughing, and are there any smells that you're aware of? Uh -huh. So yeah, I'll try to get them into all the senses, and then I will... Ask them how they're feeling. And it's usually something along the ways of relaxed or comfortable. And I will ask them where they feel that in their body. Mm -hmm. And then I'll put the pulsers on. And during the installation of a safe, calm place, we do the pulsers uh, um, at a greater distance apart. So it's a slower pulse. Okay. And I'll just put that on and have them experience how it feels to bring up this imagery of a safe, calm place and to feel it in their body. And I'll do it just for a brief period and then I'll just check in how are they feeling and they're usually feeling really relaxed and really calm. And then I'll say, what else are you noticing in your safe, calm place or other things you're right. seeing? And they'll give me a little more detail and then I'll ask them again, how are they feeling? Where do you feel it in your body? And then I'll put the pulses on again to kind of really allow them to experience how it feels to connect to the sensation in the body. And by pairing with the pulsers, it allows them to make this connection almost like on a cellular level. Mm -hmm. 
and and then I'm going to ask them if if we could call this place a, a name mm-hmm. so that they know when we bring it up that this is where they go. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'm just say the beach, but, yeah. but you know, some people have Hawaii or Maui or whatever right. it is, and not everybody has the beach. Um, so I will then, without the pulsers, invite them to bring up an uncomfortable situation that happened mm-hmm. recently. Perhaps if we were going to be on a scale of zero to ten, mm-hmm. zero being very, you know, no discomfort at all and 10 being the most, something right. like a one, maybe okay. a one and a half. And I'd have okay. them bring that up mm-hmm. in their mind and I'd have them feel it in their body. And then I'd have them bring up the beach. So I would say, you know, notice okay. how you're feeling, notice where you feel in your body. And I want you to go to the beach. And I'll give them a couple moments mm-hmm. and then I'll check in and if they notice any shift to take place right. and I've never had them not notice that there was a shift. And what they'll normally say is, huh, that thing doesn't disturb me anymore. Or, yeah, it seemed to kind of melt away, and then I was at the beach, and it was great. And and then I'll have them do it another time, bring up something a little uh-huh. more, maybe more disturbing, maybe yeah. a one and a half to a two and a half. Yeah. And then I'll have them bring up the beach or whatever it is on their own right. and notice if there's a shift. Yeah. And there's an important part to that because I remind them that they have a choice. That they can sit in this discomfort and disturbing experience, right. or they can use this new resource or other resources that they have. But there's a choice. And I didn't have the pulsers on, so it's not that they needed the pulsers to right. do this. They just had to make a conscious awareness that they were having a disturbing experience yeah. and then make a choice to use this new tool, this new resource. Yeah. And I will encourage them to use it often, even yeah. when they don't need it, maybe even right. every day. So that when they do need it, it's accessible. Um, And I often use their safe, calm place in closing down a session Mm -hmm. um, if if we need to. Um, So that's all part of the preparation phase. There's other resources that we commonly use, but um, for now, I'll just I'll just keep it at that. Okay. Um, And and you can stop at any point in the process of EMDR and add more resources if they Uh need it. Um, you know, some people get to a place where they're not feeling they can do it alone. I'm like, is there someone that you can bring in with you that can right. provide you with what you're needing to get through this piece? And right. we'll, we'll, we'll install that person, what, what they offer yeah. so that they can kind of bring in the essence of that person with yeah. them. Um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, that it's is. amazing. It's and amazing. as you get more comfortable, like there's no, uh, there's no limits to it. Yeah. So the second phase is the preparation the third phase is assessment, and that's where we start to focus on the memory target that we've identified. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the assessment phase, we bring up the memory target. And when I have a client identify the memory target, sometimes it's really obvious mm-hmm. um, because they know what they're feeling and they know where it comes from. <laughs> And, yeah. and we can just go there. Sometimes, like I said, it's not so obvious. Right. Uh, so they'll come in with a current problem and they won't necessarily know what's going on, but it just feels like they're out of control in some way. And I'll have them feel what's happening inside their body, bringing up what's mm-hmm. happening recently. Notice how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Notice what you're thinking about yourself. 
you know, notice any images, any sensations, um, and just really feel the experience in your body. And from that feeling place, I'll invite them to allow themselves to go back in time without thinking their way there because they like to think their way there. Just feel your way back mm -hmm. and, and know that what you're feeling right now isn't, this is not the first time you felt that. Mm -hmm. So feel your way back and just let me know what comes up that feels similar. And I'll give them a little time and I'll check in or they'll let me know, huh, there was a time in high school when my friends all abandoned me and I wasn't sure what's happening. That felt similar. And I'll have them bring that up yeah. in their body and go back even further until we can get to the earliest memory. It's called the touchstone memory. Mm -hmm. So the earliest memory that feels the same. And what that is doing is trying to get to the earliest memory on the memory channel mm -hmm. that similar experiences are linked to. Yeah. And so if we can get to the earliest memory, and sometimes it's not really, you know, that not accessible, or maybe that earliest memory isn't having as much of an, a, a, a negative charge to it, mm -hmm. then we might have like the worst memory mm -hmm. um, that comes up. We, what we need is something that has enough charge right. to get us, to activate that memory channel. Okay. So yeah, I find that normally that original memory, even though they hadn't thought about it for a while, when we mm. pull it up, there's still a lot of charge connected to it. So okay. then I start with that memory, the earliest memory, and I'll have them bring that up. And, you know, I'll, I'll say it's a five-year-old, uh, they were in kindergarten and they had, they were trying, this is something that did come to me, obviously, they were trying to, um, they were called up to be the student of the week. Mm -hmm. And um, when they got, they've been waiting for all their, all their kindergarten, you know, finally towards the end of the semester, they finally got called as a student of the week. And when they walked up, they, everybody started making fun of them. And um, they remember thinking something's wrong with me. And um, so I have them bring that up in the office now. And I'll have them remember what they see and notice what they hear um, and just be aware of all the thoughts and feelings that are coming mm -hmm. up and notice when you bring up this memory, what's the worst part of it? What is the very mm -hmm. worst part of the image or the memory? Mm -hmm. um, and then they'll tell me what, what that was, uh, maybe yeah. looking at all the kids' faces laughing at me. And then also when you bring up this memory, what negative thoughts come up about yourself as a person? That would be the negative cognition. So what negative thoughts come up about yourself as a person? And it would normally start with, I am. So I would prompt them so they cannot understand that. Because, um, you know, yeah. So th let's just say they say, I am um, stupid. That's a, that's a common way they have, like, I'm, I am yeah. stupid. Or let's say, I, I am a bad person. Um, you know, I, I'm not good enough which is a really common one. Yeah. Um, so that would be the negative cognition. And then I said, when you bring up this experience, mm -hmm. this kindergarten experience, what would you rather think about yourself as a person? Mm -hmm. And then that would be a positive cognition. They may say something like, I'm perfect as I am. I'm good enough, whatever that would sound like. And then I would have them bring up the kindergarten experience and those words, I am perfect as I am, mm -hmm. 
How true do they feel to you right now on a scale of one to seven? One being completely false, seven being completely true. And that's called the um, validity of cognition. And they would normally, by this time, not really be connected to that positive mm-hmm. cognition. So it's usually yeah, two, maybe, let's say. And then I would ask them to bring up that original kindergarten. We'd name that memory. So maybe yeah. they'll call it the kindergarten yeah. star pupil, right? right? So when you bring up kindergarten star pupil, I'll always call it that from now on. Okay. I'll bring it up that way. So when you bring up kindergarten star pupil, what emotions come up, mm-hmm. right? And when you bring up kindergarten star pupil and that worst part of it, what level of disturbance comes up for you on a scale of zero to 10? Zero being neutral or none, 10 being the most you've ever felt. And normally it's five or over. Mm-hmm. And when you bring up kindergarten star pupil, notice where you feel it in your body. And that's a sensation. And that's the whole assessment. It's getting the memory target. Mm-hmm. So it's the kindergarten, kindergarten star pupil right. memory. And it's um, finding out what the worst part is. It's coming up with a negative cognition. I'm not good enough. It's coming up with a sub-level, subjective unit of disturbance, 0 to 10. And I introduced that earlier when I did the, the resource of the safe, calm place, bring up something mm-hmm. disturbing on a scale of 0 to 10. Mm-hmm. So they get, start to become familiar with this idea of scaling themselves. Okay. So we get the subjective unit of disturbance. Then we get the, the positive cognition. What would they rather think about themselves? Mm-hmm. And then we get the validity of cognition, how true that feels to them now, mm-hmm. their emotions, and the sensations in their body. And once we have all that, we're ready to move into the fourth stage, which is when the desensitizing, desensitization phase, which is when we start to apply the bilateral stimulation. Oh, okay. So that's what people, this piece is what people usually think right. of as EMDR. Right. But the truth that's is, the, you can see okay. there's a lot going on before we even get there. Yeah. So, fourth stage of EMDR, desensitization. Um, when the client comes in, I will have them bring up the memory target. I, so, I will, like I said, I'll call it kindergarten star pupil. Right. And the reason I'm going to go to just that memory target is because by the time we start processing, as we continue this processing, the images and connections to it mm-hmm. all start to shift. And I want to make sure I don't put my own um, experience into their work. Right. So we have we agree upon what we're going to call it. And when uh-huh. I say it, it brings them right to that moment. Okay. So when we start to do the desensitization, I will say, when you, you know, I want you to bring up the kindergarten star pupil mm-hmm. and allow it to come to surface and whatever elements still remain. Right. Um, and those words, I'm not good enough. Right. And notice where you feel in your body. And then we can just start processing. And how that would look is they would have the bilateral stimulation, let's say the pulsers in their hands. Mm -hmm. And when I would say, notice where you feel it on the body, and they would say, I feel it in my chest, I would simply put the pulsers on. I would say, just go with that. Mm -hmm. And we would have had a conversation about what that means when I say that. Mm -hmm. And when I say, just go with that, it just means feel it in your body. Bring up the memory, feel it in your body, and then just allow yourself to be open to whatever comes next. Okay. And they don't have to do anything. I'm like, there, there's no right, right or wrong, which right. is another awesome thing about India that you can't, right. you can't do it wrong. Yeah. It's just like, whatever happens, happens. Yeah. And um, some, you'll get some clients who want to like 
do it right. You know, they want to be a good client, right. trying really hard to come up with the right answers, right. and they feel frustrated, yeah. and then we'll back off and, you know, uh -huh. You're probably trying too hard, right. <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes they're not ready because of that, that, that ability to kind of let whatever happens happen. That can right. be scary. Yeah. And so that, that might take some work to even get them ready to do EMDR. And trust you. Well, absolutely. To, uh, to yeah, because that. they have, they have things like, what if I'm doing this wrong? Or I always do things wrong. I don't know what, you know, what's expected right. of me. So they have all right. these other things they have to get through. So that sometimes brings up some issues. Yeah. Um, but let's assume that all that's been worked out and they're ready. So I'd say to them, bring up the kindergarten star pupil mm -hmm. and um, notice where you feel in the body. And I'd put the pulsers on and I would let them go, let's say 20 seconds or longer, whatever feels right. Uh, sometimes I can watch the client and see a shift and then I'll shut it off mm -hmm. and then I will check in with them. And so I will say, just let me know what's coming up for you now. Mm -hmm. And I'll have encouraged them to just be as honest as they can be. Again, there's no right or wrong. And it might not make sense even what's coming up right. may not make sense. And so they may like discount it because it doesn't seem relevant. Right. So I invite them to just not even worry about right or wrong or relevant because right. it all, the brain's going to take you where it needs to take you. Right. We're just going to follow it along, whether it makes sense or not. What I've learned from doing this is that people process differently. So it's, you can't always prepare the client how they're going to process. And I let them know that we won't really know how you process until we right. start processing. Right. Some people process by memory, you know, like in, in kindergarten that happened, but and then I remember in first grade and then fourth grade and, you know, and they have these specific memories uh -huh. and I have clients that I don't remember anything. I'm like, it's okay. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. We don't have, you don't, you don't have to. Right. Um, and some people process by awareness is like, they'll just all of a sudden start to have a different vision or view of, of their relationship to what's happening. Uh -huh. Other people have different, like, I feel sad in my chest. Hmm. Now I'm feeling really angry in my arms. So we, that's enough. Remember right. I said we don't have to go through the details. Right. All we need to know as an EMDR therapist is that there is some shift at some level right. somewhere. And then we can just trust that the brain is going where it needs to go. That's what's so amazing. Like, did yeah. So if my client says, well, I didn't really get anything, I'm like, well, where do you feel it in your body? And yeah. like before it was in their shoulders and now it's in their stomach. I'm like, okay, go with that because yeah. that's a shift. So we just need to know something's happening. So uh, in the protocol of EMDR, mm -hmm. the, this eight phases, the, that um, time when I when I asked them to bring up the memory and feel it in their body, and I put the, the pulsers on in this case, and then I shut them off, that's considered a set. Okay. As you start to become familiar with your own way and style and using EMDR, some people will have different lengths of sets. There's some versions where people keep them on during the whole processing. So you, but before the original protocol, you do a, a set and then you shut it off and you check in and you continue, mm -hmm. to, you know, and you don't want a lot of talk because you want them to kind of stay in this process. Right. So I would check in and they would say, I just remember, I just thought of, it's like, I just thought of this time I was in the car and my parents were talking about something and I thought they were talking about me being sent away to school. And they don't have to go on any further than that. And, and often they want to talk about more and more because right. they haven't thought about this in years or right. even remembered a lot of times. Yeah. And I'll let them know that in or, you know, we don't need to really have a whole conversation right. unless they really want to. Um, and normally they don't really need to. Yeah. So um, I just say to feel it in your body and we'll continue. I'll put the posters yeah. on, we'll do another set and we'll just keep on moving. And we process that with the bilateral stimulation 
until what starts happening is the memory, things start to shift. And again, as you become more familiar with this using EMDR in your practice, you start to notice when we're coming to the end or the close, the closing of a memory channel. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're looking for comments to start to be more neutral. Okay. Like, oh, I don't know. All of a sudden I was just thinking what I'm going to have for lunch. I'm like, okay, where do you feel in your body? Go with that. Right. And then it's like, oh, I know this is this is silly, but I'm thinking about the class I took this morning. So those are cues to me that we're probably at the end of the memory channel. And when um, when I find that we're probably at the end of the memory channel because they're giving me neutral experiences. And if I'm not sure, like they say, I was Mm -hmm. just thinking about after dinner, I'm I'm not sure if that's a a positive or negative because I don't know their experience or relationship to that. I will ask them, is that a positive, negative, or neutral experience? Right. And then they'll let me know. And I'll just kind of be aware. And if it's neutral or positive, like they may start laughing because they thought of something funny or a fun experience. If I get two of those in a row, Mm -hmm. I'm going to check back in with them. And I'm going to say, I'm going to ask you to bring up five year uh, kindergarten uh, star pupil. And notice what level of disturbance comes up for you now on that scale of zero to ten. And again, what's awesome is that they're scaling themselves. I'm always giving them the same instruction right. on a scale of 0 to 10, 0 being none or right. neutral, 10 being the most you ever felt. Right. So whatever they rated themselves at the beginning, now this is the same scale, and they're rating themselves here. Yeah. So let's say they start at an 8. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing this for 20 minutes, let's say. And I'm already getting neutral responses, and I check uh-huh. in, and they're like, hmm, I'd say it's about a 2. Mm-hmm. And then I ask them where they feel in the body, and we we'll go with that. And we go with that until we get a zero. So we're always trying to aim for a zero sub-level, subjective unit of disturbance. And that's, that, to me, is amazing in itself. Each session? Or is it? It's sometimes you finish memory channel set in a session. Sometimes okay. it. I've had clients I've worked with for several months, which is very unusual, but yeah. for complex trauma. Right. Right. Um, and depending on how they process it, it could right. be extended. Yeah. But there are, you know, and as, to reduce a number though each time. Yeah, like, normally the number does get reduced. Yeah. And if you can't complete the memory, you don't necessarily go back and check. You wouldn't want to check like how disturbing is it now and then stop. Right. So when you realize you're not going to have time, then you're going to go on to a different stage, which called closure. So you uh-huh. have to be able to close up that session. Right. And when I'm preparing my clients for EMDR, I let them know that's my responsibility. I'll uh-huh. be aware of the clock. I will make sure that we allow plenty of time for closure, mm-hmm. for getting them back into a place where they feel grounded and ready to finish their day. Yeah. That's my responsibility. Okay. Um, and I take that really seriously. Yeah. So I'm really aware of my client's process and yeah. what they're needing. Um, so assuming that the sub level dropped to a zero, uh-huh. we'd be then able to move on to the next stage. However, there are certain times when the sub level doesn't drop to a zero. And it will stay like a one, and it will keep on being a one, and or a two. It just doesn't get to a zero. And I will ask them, is there some reason why it's not mm-hmm. a zero? And they may have a logical explanation. Like, I just never felt safe. Or, you know, if we're trying to go mm-hmm. for, you know, like a, um, a feeling of, uh, well, they're feeling um, I, I'm not safe. And they've never actually felt safe in their lifetime, really. It's hard. It may be hard for them to picture 
a zero of right. just of level of disturbance because yeah. it's they've never felt, they've never felt zero. Yeah. So that would be what's called ecological validity. That would make mm. sense. Uh -huh. And so I'd be able to accept that right. low level because it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't go to a zero because there's other memories that are feeding into this channel that are blocking them. So there are times when I have to stop and it's yeah. like, we can't get beyond a three. I'll have to go back and have them bring up what it, where that disturbance is uh -huh. and then do another float back to see if there's another earlier memory that feels similar that that's, and nor normally there is. Uh -huh. And then we'll process that one okay. by going through all the stages and then we'll come back to the one that we interrupted to make sure it's all clear. So the attempt is to get to a zero level of disturbance. Once we've done that, or, or one that is ecologically valid, or we've identified either blocking memories, um, mm -hmm. and, and we've went back and processed those. But let's assume we get to a zero. The next part is called um, installation of a positive cognition. So we've already asked them for a positive cognition at the beginning. And some clients have a hard time coming up with that. And so I don't ever force the issue because what I also know is that as processing takes place, these positive cognitions simply arise. Mm -hmm. But we try to get that at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like the beach. So, right. Well, that's, that's the, that's the uh, installation. That's the safe calm place. Same okay, it would so be that I'm, I'm perfect exactly as I oh, am. Okay, okay. So I would, after we got the sub level to a zero. Okay. So when they bring up the kindergarten star right. pupil and there's no disturbance, yeah. then I would say, okay, when you bring up kindergarten star pupil, do those words, I am perfect as I am still fit? Or is there a different positive cognition that would fit even better? Because by now they usually, yeah. they'll either say, well, that one fits or, you know, no, I'm just okay how I am. And I would say, okay, bring up kindergarten star yeah. pupil and those words, I'm okay yeah. exactly as I am. How true do they feel to you on a scale of one to seven? One being completely false, seven being completely true. And they would let me know how true it is. And, you know, let's say a four. Right. And I would say, where do you feel that in your body? And then I would do bilateral stimulation, mm -hmm. um, very brief session. Mm -hmm. And then I would check back in. And I would continue to add bilateral stimulation until they have a very solid seven. Mm -hmm. that, that cognitive belief is as strong as it can be. It's okay. a strong seven. They feel it. Yeah. And, they, and I, you know, sometimes even encourage them, you know, say it to yourself. Yeah. Hear yourself say it out loud, you know. Yeah. Feel it in your body. Let that feeling spread. I want them right. to really feel that I am okay exactly right. as I am to its highest degree. Mm -hmm. That would be installation of a positive cognition. Okay. Once they've done that and we get, so we have a zero sub level and we have a seven on val validity of cognition. Then I'm going to have them make sure there's nothing trapped in the body. So I'm going to ask them to bring up five-year-old uh, star, I forgot the five-year-old, no, kindergarten star pupil, and the words, I am okay exactly as I am, whatever their mm -hmm. positive cognition was, and I'm going to have them hold that together in their head and just scan their body from head to toe and just let me know if there's any areas of discomfort mm -hmm. or disturbance. Mm -hmm. And if there are, I will add bilateral stimulation, just let them breathe through it and check mm -hmm. back again until I get what's called the clear body scan no disturbance mm. that would be a completed piece of work mm. that doesn't always happen that way so sometimes we have to have a closure so if the work is not done i will close down the session um, and there's different techniques for doing that but often what i will do is um 
picture a container perhaps of some some source and as you, a, a paint can or some kind of box that mm -hmm. we've already created for the purpose of putting everything that remains from this memory channel whatever is coming up that we have in process into this box and shut mm -hmm. it up and put, shut it down put it somewhere safe and then that have them go to their safe calm place so put it away step away from the container and go to your beach right mm -hmm. and have them notice what they're seeing and smelling and just be there for a while mm -hmm. experience the safety the relaxation and then i'd bring them into this room at this moment feeling mm -hmm. their feet on the ground so really do some grounding work and then have them come back in the room and have we just kind of do a very brief yeah. conversation about what some takeaways you know yeah. encourage them they've done a great job today yeah. uh, and then i want to you know what are you doing after here so i want to get them right. into the day right. into the moment and then they yeah. leave the important thing is to let them know that i'm always available 24 7 when i'm doing mm -hmm. emdr i'm available 24 7 for my clients they can call me text mm -hmm. me um, email me. I don't want them suffering unnecessarily because mm -hmm. normally we they can call and it can be yeah. uh, they can be relief in in you know two minutes. Right. I don't want them suffering, so right. I am available. I also remind my clients that processing continues to happen between sessions. Mm -hmm. Once the once that brain is opened up, that pus is going to come out, mm -hmm. and so they may notice more dreams, some flashbacks, emotions. They may mm -hmm. just remember more memories. That yeah. all of that is a part of the healing process, yeah. and we talk about it so that they're aware of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll give them what's called a Tysey's log, a piece mm -hmm. of paper that that it's like a chart that has um, it's it's triggers, mm -hmm. images, cognitions, mm -hmm. emotions, and sensations. Um, that's what TICE stands for, mm -hmm. and I'll give that to them and encourage them to just jot down and up during the week and then bring it mm -hmm. back with them in the next session. So part of the closure is closing down the piece of work safely, getting them back into the moment. When they come back the next time is the final stage of EMDR, and it's called reevaluation, mm -hmm. and that's the eighth, eighth, eighth phase. And so when they come back, I would say, do you remember the work that we were, we were, the memory target that we were working on last time we met? And I'm always surprised. They remember everything. So they're like, I do. I said, bring that up now. And does it have any disturbance for you now? Right. And no, it's okay. So it really sticks. I, I mean, That's it really sticks. Wow. And then I process, you know, we go back over the, the current triggers, like, uh -huh. Because we've done the past. Now it's like mm -hmm. when you came and you were, you know, worried about test taking or whatever it is. Yeah. When you bring that up now, how, right. what level of disturbance comes up for you? Right. And sometimes that's processed along the way. And other times mm -hmm. we focus on that as the next target. So yeah. we'll clean that up with the eight phases. Um, and then we'll be able to say, what do you anticipate happening in the future where you might right. want to feel more effective? Mm -hmm. um, so that would be moving into future templating. And you would have them actually rehearse it, see themselves in that situation. Mm -hmm. And you would have picture yourself responding in the way that you want to, where mm -hmm. you feel effective and you pair it with bilateral stimulation. And um, it gives them this sense of uh, confidence and capability to, to, mm -hmm. to, to do it differently. So that's, there's so much more to that's say. And I, I know, I know. There's so it's much like more so to many... say, but... The hour has passed, so you and I can keep on talking, but okay. I'm going to shut this down because, um, yeah, I, I think okay. that's enough. Fantastic. So thank you so much thank for your time, you. and thank you guys for listening. Have a great day. 
You just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our website, clearly-clinical.com, to your colleagues. Be sure to check out our growing library of educational podcasts and interviews. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, shine.